Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, some words about Christian hospitality from author Rosaria Butterfield, who related in a recent interview how someone's hospitality toward her helped her to come to Christ. Then you'll be hearing from Mark Rutland of Global Servants, who's a former pastor and university president offering insight into the life of David and some lessons that we can learn. Plus, providing some information relative to the land of Israel, specifically the physical land as prophesied in Scripture, it's Doug Hershey of Ezra Adventures. And coming up on this edition of The Intersection, from Save the Storks, which was recently ridiculed on an HBO program, you'll be hearing from Victoria Robinson, who talks about this pro-life ministry, which offers ultrasounds and mobile units across America, and an effective social media campaign conducted around Mother's Day. Finally, I had a chance to talk with columnist for the stream, William Briggs, who wrote a piece that touched on science, atheism, and morality, and potential effects of science without a moral component. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Rosaria Butterfield is an author and speaker, a former university faculty member, and has an amazing story of God's transformation in her life. Being the beneficiary of Christian hospitality played a key role in her coming to Christ. She's written a book about hospitality called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. Here now is Rosaria Butterfield. I just finished... Uh, writing the university's domestic partnership policy, which is the forerunner for gay marriage. So I'm very much the face of the problem. You know, the world that you live in today is one that I very sadly helped create. And I had written an op-ed in the newspaper, and it was entitled, The Promise Keeper's Message is a Danger to Democracy. And it received, as you can imagine, a lot of mail. And one piece of mail came from Ken Smith, who was then the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. And through his um, prayers, his perseverance, his love, his his wife's amazing meals, the letter that he wrote to me launched two years of conversations in his home. And during those two years, I noticed a lot of things about his home because I was there every week, Uh, and it was amazing. I noticed that the door was open. I noticed that a lot of other people walked in who weren't churched. I did notice that we would always take our questions and concerns to the Bible and that the Bible wasn't some weird museum piece, but you could really wrestle with it there at Ken Smith's house. And I I also noticed that um, he treated people differently. He, He really treated us and still does. Ken is still alive by God's good grace. Um, and really does treat us like image bearers of a holy God. And this was all very new. What was not new to me was hospitality, because the LGBTQ community also practices um, a pretty extensive and daily form of hospitality. So it was it was a very disarming thing. You know, his home was like mine in that there was food and fellowship and and people. And it was also not like mine because we would we wouldn't just end agitated and angry and scared about the future. We would end in the word of God first read and then prayed about and then sung 
um, in the in the Psalms. We would sing Psalms. In our denomination, we sing Psalms. And at Ken Smith's house, we sing Psalms. And and that was just disarming because I'm I'm musically trained, and I I love four part harmony, four part a cappella harmony. Imagine that beautiful. But the words, they just they just did me in. I found them to be at times repulsive. And so it was in that um, in that quandary, really, that 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 I eventually met the Lord, and two years later committed my life to Him and um, and joined the church. But I don't see how, without the love of a neighbor who was also a pastor who listened to all of my questions and had spent time with me, not just spare time, but pricey time. I don't know how I would have been able to really taste and see, as Psalm 34 says, that the Lord is good. And that's what I've really come to learn, that hospitality is a bridge to the stranger. And bridges get walked on. And that's not easy. Because during those times, I wasn't nice to Ken and Floyd. I would go back on campus and and, and, and mock them and uh, distort them, and they loved me anyway. Mm. And then when I came to Christ, you know, of course, I had to make a public repentance, and that, that was its own story. But I will tell you that all of that was possible because we were friends before we shared a worldview. And I really got the sense from Ken that we would have continued to be friends. I was not Ken Smith's project. I was an image bearer. And I don't think I've ever been treated like that by someone. But, you know, to do that, that's, that's close in, right? That is not, that is not um, you know, a worldview statement on Facebook or a, a placard about gay marriage on your, um, your, you know, your driveway or your front lawn. Um, one of the things that I, that I learned from Ken is that, that um, you really can't have your words be much stronger than your relationship. And so the, the challenge for the Christian is to build strong relationships so that strong words can follow. Because ultimately, the job of the Christian is to put the hand of the stranger into the hand of the Savior. And there is simply no way to do that without getting close enough to get hurt. Rosaria Butterfield here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website rosariabutterfield.com. Next on this edition of The Intersection, it's Mark Rutland, founder and director of Global Servants and the National Institute of Christian Leadership, as well as a former church pastor and university president. In a recent conversation, he shared about different aspects of the life of David, as he outlines in the book, David the Great, Deconstructing the Man After God's Own Heart. This is Mark Rutland now. He was a multifaceted genius in genres that were seemingly um, mutually exclusive. You might, a genius at, at war, at death, he, uh, he was a strategic warrior. He was, a, he was really a Jewish warlord at the end of the Bronze Age. And yet, he wrote poetry that is still being translated, loved, adored uh, 3,000 years later. He was born 1,000 years before Christ. And his poetry is as modern and contemporary as any. He was a musical genius. 
Uh, he was a prodigy. He, there's no record in Scripture of anybody else in his family being musically inclined. And yet um, he, he really won the Israeli version of the voice. Uh, <laughs> he was uh, chosen as a small boy in a remote village to go all the way to Gibeah and sing a demonic king to sleep at night. Uh, he, he's, he's just intriguing, absolutely intriguing. And as you very well pointed out, deeply flawed. He was a very complicated, complex, and, and I believe conflicted man. This is someone we follow his story and the interaction that he had with King Saul. We see his rise to power. And then we see once he assumed the throne, there were a number of concerning incidences that that came about. Would you say that his his rise to power and the assuming power, once he got there, that really opened the door for some of these different expressions of, of sinfulness to, to find root? Yes, I think that's, I think that's a, a valid observation. Certainly he was not—we we must not think that he was entirely sinless before he sure. became uh, king over the whole nation. But uh, power corrupts, and, and he, he was, uh, to a certain extent, at least on two major occasions, corrupted by it. Every, everybody knows the story of uh, David and Bathsheba. Uh, Bob, I think there are people who, who know the story, basically, and don't even know it's in Scripture. I think they think it's in Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> they're, they're aware as almost a proverbial tale of David and Bathsheba. But far fewer know that that was not his most destructive sin, not by a long shot. His, the Uriah the Hittite died. The baby that was conceived in adultery died, but that's two. It's terrible, but that's two. Um, and certainly the nation was humiliated, and David was embarrassed and all the rest. But his most destructive sin was a census. Forbidden, Israel was forbidden to take a census. David did it anyway out of hubris. He wanted to know how many people he led, how many people he was lord over. He did it, and God punished the nation with a, with a plague 70,000 of David's own people died as a result of David's sin with the census. Mm. 70,000. Why was this so offensive to the Lord? We are to infer that it was offensive to the Lord because it was, it was human pride. Uh, the census uh, was really a way of the king saying, the, I'm the Lord over all these people. I'm the king over this many. This My army is this many. And yet you see a story like Gideon, God says, whether many or few, I am the Lord thy God. And, and I think that David simply got to wanting to be a big shot, as so many do. The point of David, though, that, that still leaves you, doesn't it, Bob, with the question, how can he still be called a man after God's yeah, own heart? Exactly, yeah. After these things. I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? And not only is he called that by Samuel before we meet David, this is the intriguing thing, but a thousand years after all these complexities and flaws and successes and failures, St. Paul calls him a man after God's own heart, after knowing everything he is still called that. So how, how do we justify that? I think it is this, that David is like one of these ultra-powerful running backs that's so focused on the goal line, he's so fastened on it, that yes, you may bring him down, 
but he, he's going to fall for three and a half yards. And, and I, I think David is so fixed on who God is and on God's goodness and his mercy that even when he falls, somehow David and God make yardage out of it. Mark Rutland here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website globalservants.org. Well, author, speaker, and founder of Ezra Adventures, Doug Hershey, visited with me recently on the Meeting House program. In our conversation, he discussed some of the development of the land of Israel over the last 70 years since it became a nation, as he relates in the book, Israel Rising, Ancient Prophecy, Modern Lens. This is Doug Hershey. Yeah, the Israel Rising is a, uh, it's a photo book of sorts, but really kind of goes beyond just simply a, a, a nice photo book of Israel. What I did was I was able to get a hold of uh, originally 2,200 old photos that were taken between the 1880s and the 1940s that were um, taken all over uh, what was then the Ottoman Empire ruled by the Turks and, uh, and the British Mandate of, of Palestine. And then I went back with a pro photographer to those exact locations. Actually, I, not all 2,200, but I, I, I shrunk it down to about 100, uh, which was a, quite a challenge in and of itself. But then went back with a, with a pro photographer to reshoot the angles just to show how much that the land has responded and revived uh, under Israeli sovereignty. And, and what kind of stirred my heart with that is this uh, prophecy in Ezekiel, which is part of the, the, the name of the book with ancient prophecy and a modern lens. And in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, it talks about uh, God is speaking to the land of Israel and prophesying to the actual physical land, basically saying that when, uh, when the nations are in charge of you, you'll be empty and desolate and forgotten. And when the Jewish people return, uh, the branches will put forth fruit. The land will be cultivated and sown. Uh, the waste and forgotten cities will be rebuilt. Uh, God will multiply man and beast, and you make everything increase and be fruitful. And and so part of what this this photo journey with these comparisons were is uh, it was really just not just a then and now photo book, but really giving some visual evidence that uh, that the prophecy in Ezekiel is coming to true, coming coming to pass, and that the physical land of Israel is actually responding to its rightful owners, uh, the Jewish people, according to, according to the Bible. And obviously what is taking place in Israel, physically speaking, is amazing in and of itself. The fact that this ha- was predicted thousands of years ago by the prophet Ezekiel, that really uh, attaches some special significance to what is taking place in Israel. I wanted you to elaborate just a bit on the the biblical significance of what is occurring there. Yeah, and when it comes to Israel and the things that are happening now, you know, it's it's uh, when we think of Bible prophecy, we think of it as being allegorical or symbolic, or you know, especially in end time sort of scenario or theology, we we talk about timelines and scenarios and what country could be what and who's represented where and. And what we're finding in the nation of Israel is that many of these scriptures that talk about the restoration of Israel or that the Jewish people returning back to their land or the land reviving or the deserts blooming or waste cities being rebuilt, they're not allegorical. They're not spiritual. They're not symbolic. They're all tangible. They're all very literal. You know, in Isaiah 27, it says that in that day, Jacob will take root and fill the earth with fruit. You know, wherever you're at in the country, I mean, you can go to a, a, a Costco or a Whole Foods or something like that, and, and uh, if, if you look for Israeli 
fruits, vegetables, and flowers, you'll find them. They're, they're literally filling the earth with fruit. And so in terms of, of what's happening today, uh, we're really seeing one of the most dramatic, I believe, one of the most dramatic displays of God's faithfulness that we've seen in probably 2,600 years, uh, just simply because the most repeated promise in the Old Testament is that God will return his people back to the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so just simply putting the Bible aside, it's just a, a, a unique uh, anomaly in human history to have a particular people group on a piece of land and then forcibly removed for 70 years to then come back to the same piece of land and then after some time being scattered to the ends of the earth for over 2,000 years to again be brought back to the exact same piece of real estate as an identifiable, recognizable people, same tradition, same scriptures, speaking the same language. Just that scenario in and of itself is, is an anomaly in human history. It's never happened before. And it just so happens to be the, the only people group that the God of Genesis 1, the God of our Bible, said he's made an everlasting covenant with. And we're seeing a lot of these miracles unfold, um, not only in our day, but in very practical and tangible ways through what's happening in the nation of Israel. Doug Hershey here on The Intersection. Find out more through the website EzraAdventures.com. This is the Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. You can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info. There at the homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Also, you can access the Intersection Podcast through the Faith Radio app. Learn more through the website faithradio.org. You can also access the Meeting House homepage by going to the programming section of that website. When you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You could also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Victoria Robinson is Director of External Relations of the pro-life ministry called Save the Storks, which utilizes mobile ultrasound machines at pregnancy resource centers across the U.S. In our recent conversation, she talked about a recent social media campaign that the ministry had launched around Mother's Day, which came in the aftermath of ridicule on an HBO program. Here now is Victoria Robinson. I've been involved in almost two decades working with pregnancy resource centers as an executive director myself, and I started as a volunteer, Bob. So I've kind of been in every single role that you can think of in a pregnancy center. I've done it before I worked my way up to then becoming the executive director. And I can speak from my own personal experience in the three centers that I have managed and also the hundreds of executive directors that I have met and worked with throughout the country, John Oliver doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> but I would like to say this. Thank you, Mr. Oliver. Mm-hmm. The man, I've never heard of the guy. I'd never heard of him until this, this happened because I don't have a sus- subscription to HBO. And I don't think his program is one I would watch if I did, to be quite honest. So um, I watched the video and had people asking me, oh, are you so angry? Are you just, is your blood boiling? And I'm like, you know, not really. I'm kind of watching it laughing, going, 
this guy has no idea what kind of can of worms he's just opened. We're sharing in the video, and, and, and when you watch the video, you'll recognize a few things, one of them being this is not your typical pro-life agenda video. And I think that the feedback I'm getting from a lot of people is, now this is something I can get behind. There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. You, you can't, you're not really taking uh, the other side and, and condemning them or coming after them because we're not. That's not what it's about. The video is about mothers and their babies. It's about the women because that's one of the things in this whole entire um, pro-life movement, pro-choice movement, that people get accused of different things, and one of them being you don't care about the women, you're just about saving the babies. We do care about the women, and you're going to see that flavor throughout the video because I'm not involved in this work, Bob, just to save babies. Praise God for the babies that are saved through a mother hearing a heartbeat or seeing her baby on an ultrasound screen. But I am also in this work because these women matter as much as these children they're carrying matter. And we've got to make sure that they understand there are other options than abortion because of how abortion is going to affect them afterwards. So, and, and they need to know that they're feeling, they, they feel supported and loved. And that's why our relationships with the local pregnancy resource centers is so critical. When a woman walks onto a storage bus, without feeling condemned or judged and there's no fear if she chooses to carry her baby to term, which, Bob, four out of five women do after stepping on a Storks bus, she can give her the resources to go to your local pregnancy resource center that we already partner with, and they're going to take it from there as far as helping you through the next nine to seven months, whatever the rest of your pregnancy is, and afterwards. Mm. to help you with baby supplies and diapers and everything that they need. Education is huge in the pregnancy resource centers. So that's what you're going to see in the video. I've had friends who are, because believe it or not, I, I, am, I am a Christian, but I have friends who are not Christian, but they're still my friends. And they're telling me, okay, Vic, now this is the most powerful video I've ever seen on this issue. And it doesn't even offend me whatsoever. That's huge, Bob. We're, we're changing the way people, mm. we're shifting the paradigm, so to speak, as to how people view this cause. And um, that gets me really excited because I'm all about shifting people's paradigms, especially <laughs> the religious community. Yeah. I feel God called me to do just that. As far as the timing goes, I was asked 18 months ago to be part of this video because you'll see my story and I also narrate throughout the video. Before I even came on board working um, as a staff member at Save the Storks, I was just called upon to share my testimony because I had a relationship with Save the Storks throughout the last several years, and I jumped at the opportunity because I believe in their mission and their cause and how they do it. I, oh, I really believe in the way that they approach it. So they told me 18 months ago, yeah, we're going to release this probably in the next six months. They had these different target dates, and then little things started happening with sound, or I had to go back in the studio to record something that didn't get picked up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, we heard, all right, our target is Mother's Day weekend. We're releasing the video. It's going to be done. That's our goal. And then here comes John Oliver's video, weeks before our target. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you can't see God's hand all over this, it blows my mind, but you know, he is in the business of so many things. One of them being surprising us with, you guys think you're the ones in control. I'm the one calling the shot. So it couldn't have come at a better time. The timing was 
perfect. Victoria Robinson here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website savethestorks.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's William Briggs, columnist for The Stream. In our conversation, he shared comments related to one of his pieces that explored what a society might be like if it only relied on science, which does not offer a moral component. From that conversation, this is William Briggs. A guy by the name of Michael Shermer described as being a skeptic. He's looking at these statistics about people, the the so-called nuns, and we're seeing all sorts of research about those that do not claim to be religiously affiliated. And and he draws some conclusions based on this data. That's your starting point for the article. Share with us how you developed some thoughts from there. Yeah, uh, you know, this uh, tracking that he's done is based on publicly available data like the Gallup polls, Pew polls, and so forth that do show a steady uh, rise in the people who declare themselves to be nuns or not spiritually uh, affiliated with any uh, major religious group or organization. Uh, There's also the growth of people who openly declare atheism and agnosticism and this sort of stuff. And there's some estimates about maybe it's 20%, maybe it's plus or minus that. You know, nobody knows exactly the level. But he celebrates this uh, for two reasons. And and Mike Shermer is a big skeptic. He publishes uh, Skeptic Magazine, helps run that organization. So he's a well-known guy on this kind of thing. But uh, all these guys are getting excited, in particular him, for two reasons. He he says the first reason they get excited about this is that as people become more diverse, that will be able to remove power from any kind of religious controlling authority, and people's lives will be freer and uh, uh, less burdensome, which, of course, is the exact opposite of the truth. The government is encroaching into people's lives uh, increasingly on a daily basis almost. Uh, it's putting its fingers in where, uh, you know, family and religion used to, uh, you know, hold sway. The government is now taking over in every aspect uh, that it can and will continue to do so. If you don't have God to look up to, you have to look up to something. And that's the next point. Um, Shermer is excited about the growth of the number of atheists because they're going to vote. And as they vote, he thinks that we can now have a government or a system that he says is based on grounding our morals and values on viable secular sources such as reason and science. And that's the real problem, uh, because science is utterly and absolutely silent on morals. It cannot tell anything. Uh, cannot tell anybody what the difference is between right and wrong, whether something is a sin or not a sin, whether something is moral, immoral. uh, Science has nothing to say, nothing whatsoever to say. So we cannot ground our morals. We cannot ground our civilization on science, and it's silly to say so, and he he should have known that. Because they believe they're going to be basing, uh, they're they're going to derive morals from some sort of scientific system, which is impossible, Uh, science is in the measurement, prediction, and explanation business. That's it. That's all it can do. It can't tell you what's right and wrong. It can't tell you what's moral and immoral. But scientists, of course, 
can tell you what's right or wrong, just like you or I can. We all have those kinds of opinions. But in the case of scientists, they're not going to realize that they're basing their judgment of what's right and wrong, moral and immoral, on their own prejudices. And they're not going to recognize their prejudices as prejudices. And they're going to think that they've somehow derived, uh, you know, the, the fact that murder is wrong from some scientific observation, which is impossible. And therefore, any time that you come up with uh, uh, trying to argue with a, a scientist who have based their system of morals on science, you're going to be labeled as some kind of a science denier. The evidence is against you. There's no way to sort of uh, win in a system like that. This scientific atheism has to be based on some kind of uh, principles that are underlying all the things that they're doing, and they just don't realize that these things are blind prejudices. And as I say in this article, scientists, you know, because they have to spend such a long time in training for their particular subjects, you know, years and years, they don't have any special training in history and philosophy and the law and governance in literature, they're absolutely ill-equipped to speak on the things that matter most to people. William Briggs here on The Intersection. You can read the article at thestream.org. His website is wmbriggs.com. Well, we are nearing the end of this week's edition of The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info, or go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand. You can also subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. The Intersection podcast is available through the Faith Radio app. Learn more when you go to faithradio.org. And when you visit the Meeting House homepage, you'll find links to two blogs, The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House, as well as The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. You can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.